The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. I believe that every one of us is not only capable, but actually we are having mystical experiences all the time. Now, lest you think that is something of the woo-woo variety, What I mean by a mystical experience is one of those times when you really come to see that the line between self and other is blurred and we really are part of this great, magnificent whole of living kind. I had one of those when I was on a press tour at Jungle Friends Sanctuary in Florida A spider monkey was extremely interested in me, and although it was against the rules when nobody was looking, I reached up where he had his little hand, and he took hold of my hand, and we held hands, and we looked into each other's eyes, and all that I could think of at that time was that Michelangelo painting when Adam touches God. Well, after the break, we're going to be talking about that lovely little primate and lots of others at Jungle Friends Sanctuary when our guest is Carrie Bagnow from there. But before that, we're going to be talking about fun and important fun, kind living, environmental living with Ashley Piper, who is a beauty and lifestyle expert living in Chicago, author of a gorgeous new book, Give a sh- shoot. <laughs> you can find the book. You know what it says. <laughs> the subtitle is Do Good, Live Better, and Save the Planet. And that is what we are about here at Main Street Vegan as well. I am Victoria Moran, host for this program. If you want to know more about what happens at Main Street Vegan, then please just take yourselves on over to MainStreetVegan.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Main Street Vegan. And there is a brand new Facebook group, Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners. So that's really the inside scoop of people who love this weekly program. And thanks to all the people who are part of that now. And welcome to all of you 
who will want to be joining. For now, let me introduce to you a lovely friend of mine, and that is Ashley Piper. She is an eco-lifestyle journalist, TV personality, and author of the new sustainable living book, Give a S-H asterisk T, do good, live better, save the planet. Her work has been featured in, and she's been a regular contributor for Glamour, Refinery29, The Washington Post, NBC, Fox, and more. Her BA is from Brown University, and her MSc is from Oxford in the UK. And you can find out more about her at Ashley, that's A-S-H-L-E-E, Piper.com. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you, Victoria. I'm so excited to be here because, as I mentioned earlier, you're my favorite. <laughs> One oh, of my favorite bless your heart. Well, Full this stop. this is a wonderful book. Long time coming. I Thank think you. that just for this wonderful chart, this is a three and a half page chart that I am finding in your adorable book, and it is adorable. I love the shape too. So from page 106 to page 109, you have a chart called From Friends to Food, How Some Animals Live and Die in Traditional Large-Scale Agriculture. Yep. That alone, <laughs> I think, should be reprinted and distributed to every school, every church, every environmental organization on earth. It's not emotional. It's just clear. What inspired you to include that in an eco-lifestyle book? Thank you. Um, well, the first inspiration was I, you know, I feel the most potent thing that we can all be doing to be better stewards of the planet, better environmentalists, is to eat fewer animal products. Um, obviously, we're on Main Street Vegan Radio, so, <laughs> so you and I both happen to be ethical vegans, but it is something that we're seeing every day more and more data from longitudinal studies that backs up that animal agriculture is the most polluting industry on the planet. Um, so I wanted to present the life and death, essentially, of many animals that we traditionally eat in an unemotional way. Thank you very much for feeling like I had mastered that. Um, because it is, for many of us, a very emotional thing when we start to talk about it. I became vegan because of animal rights reasons, and um, not everybody is going to get there from there. That's not going to be the catalyst for people who might change the way that they eat. So, But also, I feel like there aren't many people who are armed with the reality or the information on how these animals, from a USDA standard, um, are allowed to be, quote-unquote, processed. And so I wanted to kind of put that in uh, an unemotional place where people could refer back to it and get the information so it doesn't require folks to watch an undercover video of a slaughterhouse that would, is gory and horrific and certainly does a lot of good in many ways by bringing people's attention to the realities that animals face in animal agriculture. But I wanted it to be something that almost anybody um, could pick up and get the information and feel confident in it as well. I put a lot of citations in the book, um, mostly because I come from a decently conservative family um, who kind of don't necessarily believe climate change is real. Um, they do eat kind of a standard American diet. And I thought about how, when I have conversations with them, um, what's 
been the most effective. What's resonated the most with them is kind of the cold hard facts. They don't want the emotion wrapped um, wrapped around those. So I just wanted to keep it like a like an HR style chart that you might see at work or something. <laughs> It's it's extremely powerful, and I'm so happy that you included fishes, and you, you make a statement about them that I was unaware of, that they can be starved for up to 10 days prior to slaughter to avoid waste contamination during transport. That yeah. alone is such a powerful statement, whether it's the idea of starving creatures, horrible as that is, or whether it's the idea that there's so much filth involved that the only way you can get this product to market is by starving the animal for a week and a half. That's so right. powerful. Yeah, there are, I, even when, when I was writing it, obviously, and you know this, Victoria, because you're the OG of writing these kinds of books. I mean, I was reading your books before you were explicitly writing about veganism, though you very much have been in this lifestyle and communicating it and for a very long time. I essentially feel like I learned a lot about compassionate living from your books, especially your earlier ones. Um, but you know this, as you write a book, you yourself learn a lot of things as well through that process. So, you know, I kind of thought, oh, I know quite a bit, but it, you know, as I went through the process of researching the book, making sure it was accurate, fact-checking everything, uh, there were so many things, especially related to that chart, that had me 100% shook. <laughs> I was just mm -hmm. like, what? So well, I, I find it interesting because I always think of you as a beauty it. expert. And I know we all do a lot of things and other people peg us into one area. And yeah. yet I love how this book, you bring in beauty and lifestyle and food and socializing with a strong environmental message but not a strident environmental message. So how do we walk the line there? Well, you're such a good wordsmith. Strident. I haven't heard that word in so long. Wonderful. Um, well, I think, you know, you, you often posit in your books and in your talks and just your general advice that we really need to lead by example and that nobody's going to necessarily be interested in what we have to say if we are strident, if we're overly strong in our message, if we're judgmental, if we're shaming people. That's never been shown to be an effective way to bring folks to the table or to pique someone's interest in any kind of movement or lifestyle. Um, so I really hope that it comes through in the book and the way I at least try to um, conduct myself is to be as cool and approachable as possible about these things. Um, and to also recognize, you know, we're all living different lives. We have different experiences. And I really do like to believe that most people are doing the best they can. And if armed with the right information and the right action items and sort of a feeling of being supported and celebrated for even small choices that they make, we all can feel a lot better about mm -hmm. taking these small well, steps. Well, I love how you've really done this. I love how your publisher has put the book together. It is so user-friendly. The Thank yellow you. highlights are already there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. <laughs> so please, listeners, do take a look at this book. Get it for yourself. If you are an older person and you have younger people in your life, get this for your teen and 20-something children. They will really relate to how it's written. And they can get busy doing this and saving this planet. So, Ashley, I think yeah. most people think they're environmentalists because we yeah. all recycle and 
we don't see ourselves doing egregious things. You know, I don't make an oil mm -hmm. spill. And yet there've got to be some really clear things that we're not thinking of that we all need to be doing in addition to living vegan. What are those? Yes. Um, they're going to be different for everybody. I want them to feel tailorable or customizable to people's lives. But there are some things that are very easy to do, not expensive, actually can save you money and make a big difference. So we're hearing a lot about single-use plastics nowadays, especially the whole stop sucking straw, um, issuing the use of straws movement, which is great. Um, so not using straws is a great way to start or getting yourself a reusable one unless you're someone who's differently abled and you need to use a straw for accessibility reasons. Um, bringing your own bottle when you go places, bringing your own, you know, I always recommend to people to just have a reusable arsenal on them most of the time. So usually I have some sort of vessel for liquids, whether it's water or coffee, and I usually have a little stainless steel tiffin that I bring with me. So if I go out to eat and I have leftovers, I can put them, put them in that. I bring some reusable cutlery, a reusable napkin. It doesn't really weigh me down, but what it does do is provide two things. One, the opportunity to refuse single-use plastics, which really aren't recyclable, and they clog up landfills. And they float into our oceans and create a lot of problems for the ecosystems there. But two, it also forces me to slow down a little bit and be more thoughtful. And I really try to hit home minimalism in a way, as a, as a way of really taking a breath, taking a pause in your life, because sometimes you need to do that in order for these newer, more beneficial for the planet and yourself habits to stick. So it helps me to feel like I'm actually, a meal is an occasion as opposed to rushing around and all that stuff. So I, I kind of get that benefit of like in my busy life, ooh, slowing down for a second and enjoying whatever I'm drinking or enjoying my snack or saving my leftovers for the next day and something I can actually bring to work with me, those kinds of things. Um, paper towels, you know, something as simple as like not using paper towels anymore or weaning ourselves off of them and using reusable, washable just cloths that we either fashion from. You don't even have to go out and buy them. You can make them from old sheets, old towels, old shirts, but using those, you know, cloths instead of paper towels can seriously cut down on, one, the trees that we utilize to make paper towels, but also the resources, the oil, the water, all of the things that we waste, as well as the pollution that happens after we use paper towels. Um, in the book, there are just simple tips, too, like turning your water heater down if you have the ability to do that from 140 degrees to 120. You save money doing that. Um, you obviously aren't going to really survive and enjoy a 140-degree shower. <laughs> so, so you're not losing, like, the wonderful things that you enjoy, like a hot bath or a hot shower. And it puts a lot less burden on the environment. So there are definitely things that we can be doing, and also secondhand. You know, I encourage people, whether you're getting a car, a shirt, furniture for your home, to, to really look for secondhand and also to build community through resource sharing. We've, we've gotten pretty disconnected from one another with all these devices and things that are supposed to bring us together. But if you need something like, you know, a waffle iron or a lawnmower, chances are someone in your neighborhood has one that they rarely use that they'd be willing to share with you or even swap something that they need with you for it. So I feel like being more environmentally friendly not only creates opportunities for us to take a pause in our lives, to enjoy the moment, 
to save money um, and to feel better about doing good things for the planet, but also for us to connect with each other, which we are woefully missing these days a little bit. Well, you have not missed anything. I mean, so many of these suggestions I've never, ever thought about. So in your travel section, for example, you say, fly nonstop. Well, I prefer to do that just for the wear and tear on the body. But the idea that it <laughs> saves so much in terms of, of uh, fossil fuels and, and the global warming gases, never, ever thought of that. Uh, and even yeah. things like how we wrap packages there's so many mm-hmm. ways that you can creatively make your life more interesting and more aspirational and save the planet at the same time. So tell me some of your personal favorites. What are some things that you do in your life today that you weren't doing five years ago that just make you happy? Things that really make me happy. Well, so much. I mean, uh, I talk in there about how even adopting companion animals as opposed to shopping at a pet store or buying from a breeder is a more eco-friendly option. I think also more of an ethically imperative option. Um, that certainly has made my en- enhanced my life significantly, I know, for you as well, since you have a sweet pup at home. Um, I pack my lunch a lot more, and actually I visit the farmer's market at least once or twice a week during work. Um, so that's been an exciting way for me and some of my coworkers to have a little, have a little adventure in the middle of the day and get some package free goodies that are better for us than running out for lunch. Uh, so that's been something that we've made like an occasion. And I think that's really sweet. Um, other things that I've done that have enhanced my life last year, I challenged myself to only buy everything secondhand with a few exceptions like food or toothbrushes, <laughs> like stuff that's touching, like, you know, parts of your body that you may not want to have something super secondhand. But that was what I thought would be, and I called it a challenge, was probably one of the most enriching things I've done, Most one of the most enriching years of my life, for sure. I learned a lot about myself. Um, I saved a lot of money. I had a lot more time to write this book, for instance, and to hang out with my friends and do the things that I enjoyed because I, through that process, had uncovered that I was using, in a way, shopping as a salve for stress. And so when you only buy things secondhand, you really have to learn patience, which I'm not super predisposed (laughs) to be good at. So it, it was, a, it, I don't, I wouldn't even call it a challenge anymore. It was a really beautiful opportunity in my life. And now it's a behavior that I pretty much have carried, carried on into the rest of my life. Um, now I probably get 80% of the things that I own or buy are secondhand, um, which feels really good. So there are, and then when I gift things to people, I used to be a big spender, a big gift giver. And now I certainly still like to give gifts. Uh, but I I really like to do experiences, like with my family. And we used to be just a big gift-giving family, tons of presents under the tree, but stuff very, we would very rarely use and things all wrapped in glitter and, and, you know, then on Christmas morning or whatever, it all goes into the hefty bag and then to the landfill. And now we're all becoming more attuned to this and we're we're giving experience gifts or we're giving each other the gift of quality time. And... I think like when you're doing things that are more environmentally friendly, when you are embracing kind of a fewer but better quality um, ethos in your life, you come to find really what are the most important things. You essentially pare down your life to the most important things. For me now, I feel like I live 
in more alignment with my values and I am able to focus on the things that are truly important, like the people in my life and the experiences and the, my passions. And I wasn't as able to do that when my life was crowded up with shopping and with like going out to eat all the time. You know, I mean, I just wasn't taking those pauses that I needed to in order to do that. And what living this way has allowed me to, to get there a wow. lot more. Wow. So that's the second part of your subtitle, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet. And I think that's so yeah. important because lots of times people think, yeah, I, I know about those environmental people. Please, life's too short. But that's not mm -hmm. what you're talking about. You're talking about living a really quality life and saving the planet, too, so that everybody can live a quality life. Let me ask you, Ashley, right. about the whole perfectionist thing. I was so mm -hmm. excited to see on Instagram these covers for bowls and food and other things that you would otherwise put in a Ziploc bag or wrap in plastic wrap. So mm -hmm. I bought them and they showed up and I figured out how to work them and it was all great and I was using them. And then a couple of weeks later I thought, why not read the literature that came with them? And to my right. horror, I found out that they have a small amount of some non-vegan something in it, a kind of leather derivative. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and it was just oh. like, okay, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be perfect. But, you know, the fact that the error wasn't just some other kind of imperfection, it was vegan imperfection and vegan is my thing. It's mm -hmm. tough when that happens. So how do you deal with trying to be the world's best vegan environmentalist? Oh, gosh, I would probably first deal with that by not trying to be that. <laughs> I, not trying to be that. I think actually being vegan is a good crash course in uh, learning that you're never going to please everyone and you're never going to be perfect. So because there's as with any movement, and I'm not by any means villainizing vegans or the vegan movement. I count myself very much among everybody, and I'm grateful to be associated with that word. I don't consider it to be a bad word or a bad community or anything. I think it's beautiful. But we've all been there where we've been well-intentioned, and there are about a million gotcha vegans who, you know, want to say how you've messed up or how you're not there yet or how you're not vegan enough. And uh, I feel like it really boils down to intention. I mean, your intentions with that were so sterling. It's it's pretty, you know, you're just, I understand the impetus to beat yourself up a little bit about those little mistakes, but I've kind of let go of the perfectionism on that because one thing to be vegan, it's hard enough to be quote unquote perfect at that. But then if you're also trying to live an eco-ethical lifestyle, that, is, that has challenges associated with it too. You're never going to be perfect. So that's actually why... In the book, you know, we have, social media shows us these beautiful kind of exemplum virtuous posts and accounts of like gorgeous people who have trash from three years or for three years only in a very small mason jar. And people think if they can't get to that level, why bother? And that is the problem. That's why we're here is because we feel like if we can't be perfect, then we can't do it. And that's not true. I mean, I don't yeah. necessarily think somebody needs to, I mean, it would, would it be great if everybody was vegan? Heck yeah, that'd be cool. Come on over to this side. But if somebody says, no, nah, I can only do like two meatless meals a day, 
but they're normally eating like three meat, meat, meaty meals. That's that's a win. That still has a positive impact. So I don't ever want people to feel like they have to be perfect because I do think perfect is, in this case at least, like the enemy of good. And mm. I'd rather and, and the book comes across that way. Thing. It's very friendly. You don't back down at all, but you're still very friendly and, and accepting. Wonderful, wonderful book. Just in our last couple of minutes, some of the things that you tackle here are controversial and some of it is new information. So I think it's not new mm -hmm. to anyone that there are terrible conditions in the garment trade, terrible for animals, terrible for people, particularly the fast fashion, these uh, low cost clothes that you can just feel like you can wear a few times and, and throw out. But is Made in America, from an eco perspective, always better? Uh, so it, it depends on what we're talking about, like what we're comparing it to. I would say Made in America is better than Made in China, if, even if the conditions are the same. One, we have a, a few more stringent re regulations around in the garment industry in the U.S. than they do in some other countries like Bangladesh and China, which are notoriously kind of poor on um, human rights, especially in a working setting. And from another perspective, made in America, usually at least the finished product has to travel a lot less. So when you consider the emissions and the resources associated with getting a garment from India, for instance, to the United States versus getting a garment from Kentucky to New York City, the environmental toll is a lot less for something that's made in America. And there are other considerations too, stimulating a local economy, you know, uh, that, that is important as well. So I, I like to present all of those options, not to say that necessarily one is better than the other, but in the giant rubric of us kind of trying to make better choices in a very confusing universe, especially when it comes to dressing ourselves, uh, made in the USA is certainly something that's worth considering as better than the norm. And by the norm, I mean, going to, you know, a fast fashion retailer where you can buy a $6 shirt or a $10 pair of jeans um, that were made usually in like China by women and children and people who are not there willingly, um, who are barely making a livable wage and probably don't get regular bathroom breaks, <laughs> you know, mm. so, and almost anything All is an improvement over that. great stuff to know and, and wonderful practical things to follow. In fact, even on the book, most people, most books would say a book by, yours says a practical handbook by Ashley Piper. And I'm so proud of you as a longtime friend that you have written this, oh. that it's gorgeous, that it's effective, and may it just get out there in a huge, huge way. Uh, we'll put all of Ashley's contact information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you so much, Ashley Piper. Give a Thank you. SH asterisk T. And everybody else, stay with us. We'll be back with New World Primates. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Katherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. I heard from a young lady who was just starting out as a Unity minister, and she said, I am not teaching prosperity yet in my ministry because I have not yet demonstrated it in my own life. And I don't think I should teach what I have not demonstrated. And I wrote her back and said, Honey, you've got it all backwards. You need to teach what you want to learn. You teach what you want to demonstrate because you cannot demonstrate what you do not know. There must be an inworking before there can be an outworking. To find out more about Unity Teachings, visit unity.org. Unity is proud to announce the first-ever New Thought Walden Awards, honoring 27 leaders who are helping to change the world. Some are well-known, but most are unsung heroes. They care about spirituality, healing, interfaith understanding, caring for the earth, and social activism. Read about them in the September-October edition of Unity Magazine or go online to waldenawards.com. Congratulations to all. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment. The ancient Chinese philosopher known as Lao Tzu brings us into the present moment with this quote. Do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, but not seeking, not expecting, is fully present and can welcome all things. When you're feeling impatient, think about this passage and trust in the moment. Would you like to experience more peace and joy in your life through A Course in Miracles? Let Reverend Jennifer Hadley support you in discovering the powerful life lessons available through this unique spiritual thought system that teaches the way to love and peace is through forgiveness. Join Jennifer every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for A Course in Miracles, living the love, walking the talk, to experience the healing for yourself on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody, a couple of announcements before we proceed. I want to alert you to the most important, I think, blog post that certainly I have put up in a long time. It is an interview with Silish Rao, Ph.D., a systems engineer who was actually instrumental in developing the Internet, which every time I say that, I think, did I just say developing the Internet? 
<laughs> Silas Shrau is with uh, climatehealers.org. He is brilliant about the environment. And his research has shown that by 2026, if things continue as they are now, there will not be any wild animals left on this earth. So if we didn't think that climate change was enough of a push, this is a huge push. And uh, the interview that I did with him is up this week uh, at MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. So I would highly recommend that you take a look at that. Also want to do a quick shout out to our sponsor, Compliment, developed by vegan dietitian Dr. Pam Ferguson and no-meat athlete Matt Frazier. Compliment provides your vitamin B12, D3, and essential omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA, in a good-tasting once-a-day spray. If that sounds good to you, take a look at alpineorganics.co. And if you like what you see and want to get some compliment for yourself, you can just put in the code MAINSTREETVEGAN, all caps, and you'll get yourself 10% off to your health. The most amazing place exists not too far from Gainesville, Florida, and it is called Jungle Friends Primate Sanctuary. It's home to over 300 rescued monkeys from the exotic pet trade, from laboratory research, the entertainment industry, and monkeys who were confiscated by the authorities. And our guest, Carrie Bagnell, is Jungle Friends founder and executive director. She was volunteering as a court-appointed special advocate for abused and neglected children in Las Vegas when a baby monkey named Samantha changed the course of her life and inspired Jungle Friends. Wow, what a story. (laughs) Welcome, Carrie Bagnell. Oh, thank you so much, Victoria. It's so great to talk to you. (laughs) It is wonderful to talk to you. I'm always thrilled when I talk with someone in animal protection who is also a vegan, because I know (laughs) lots of times, whether we're talking companion animals or wildlife, a lot of people are doing wonderful, selfless work, but they haven't yet awakened to the vegan piece and you're just as awake as anybody could be. So congrats to you on all counts. So take us back. Tell us about Samantha and uh, how monkeys became your passion. <laughs> well, it was kind of crazy. I always tell people, say, why did you choose monkeys? And I have to say, I didn't choose monkeys. They chose me. It's kind of how it worked out. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend who wanted to buy a pet monkey. I talked him out of it for a year because I had never heard of anything quite so absurd. Then he found a breeder right in Las Vegas and said, we've got to go see, you know, we've got to go see this. See, They've got little baby capuchin monkeys. We've got to go and see this. Okay, we'll go. So then we see this little baby, cute, four-month-old, white-faced capuchin come out riding on the back, clinging to a standard poodle. I'm riding out in, just hanging on to this poodle. And um, the ex-boyfriend asked, what is the, um, how old is is the monkey? And he said, she was born December 18th. She's four months old. And he said, oh, my goodness, it's an omen. That's my birthday. We must have her. (laughs) So 
then I couldn't talk him out of it anymore because he thought this was this omen that he needed to get this monkey. And now looking back, probably yes, because out of, you know, this whole ordeal and Samantha coming into my life, you know, Jungle Friends was born. So she was the person, I call people, she was the monkey who started this whole thing. And I learned, yeah, this was 25 years ago before the internet. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about monkeys. I read all the Jane Goodall books and did find out that all primates need to be with other primates. They're social animals. So I went about my way talking about what a bad idea pet monkeys are and people said yes you're right here's mine and here's mine so this was really kind of before sanctuaries and I just had them in my house everywhere and and built you know runways and habitats outside and soon decided that the Las Vegas climate was not very good for the monkeys and the dry heat They like heat, but they want hot, humid heat. So that's why I packed everybody up and we moved to Florida, where it's a much better climate for the monkeys. (laughs) And for anyone, I think Las Vegas is pretty, pretty tough. (laughs) So when we're talking about the kinds of monkeys, now you don't have gorillas and and chimps. You have smaller monkeys. So why? And tell us about them. So we have monkeys, and the main difference between monkeys and apes with the gorillas and chimpanzees and um, gibbons are considered apes, and they don't have tails. Monkeys have tails. So that's the main difference between a monkey and an ape. So, And then there's the other difference is um, New World monkeys versus Old World monkeys. So New World monkeys are from... South and Central America, and some spider monkeys are actually in Mexico. And then the old world monkeys are Africa, Asia, places like that. And they they have tails, but they aren't prehensile tails, where the new monkey world, new world monkeys have prehensile tails, so they can swing by their tails. Not all of them, but some of them do. So those are just kind of the differences between the monkeys. And Samantha was a capuchin monkey, which was very popular as pets, still is. And that's what just kept showing up for me, you know, were capuchin monkeys. And then other monkeys got popular as pets, spider monkeys. So we ended up with spider monkeys and then marmosets and tamarins and (laughs) squirrel monkeys. But a lot of the monkeys that we have do come from laboratory research. Actually, most of them now do come from laboratory research. And they have um, a lot of the New World monkeys, a lot of macaques. The chimpanzees are now, thank goodness, are no longer being used in research. So they're all getting out, which is amazing. Mm. Uh, How do the monkeys at Jungle Friends get out of research? Uh, Actually, the researchers call me (laughs) and ask. It's either the researcher or a veterinarian or a vet tech or even I've had volunteers call, you know, and just say, you know, if uh, these monkeys are are here and they're ending their their um, their research studies, could they come there? So they'll check with me and then they'll go to the researcher or, you know, the university and ask if they can come. And it's more and more, I've been speaking at um, different places like the USDA symposium with breeders and researchers. I've spoken at the um, 
American Society for Primatologists about, and they're all researchers about retiring their their monkeys and and they're all um so that's why a lot more are being able to get out be you know no one wants mass euthanasia which is what they do when they're finished if you know they don't have a place for them to go or you know a lot of times they don't even know that sanctuary is an option so we're trying to you know of course I don't want monkeys in labs. I don't want them in zoos. I don't want them anywhere but in the wild. But the facts are they are in labs right now, and I want them when they're finished. I don't want them killed. I want them to have a life. So, yes. you know, that's that's where you know, that's where they come come from is actually the labs do call me about it. Mm-hmm. And it's someone in the lab or at the university who call. Oh, well, you are prominently featured in uh, Thomas Jackson's upcoming film, A Prayer for Compassion, you and your residents. And you <laughs> I say <love> there <laughs> that you don't even want them in the degree of captivity that they're in in a sanctuary. And yet, practically speaking, this is the very best possibility for these these wonderful creatures. Do you find that the ones who come from labs have trauma that maybe some of the ones who were pets or something don't have, or maybe being a pet is traumatizing too. Yeah, it's, you know, and I get asked that question a lot. And actually the pet monkeys that come are humanized. They think that they are, they they don't even know they're monkeys. They're humanized and they, they don't fit in with humans or monkeys a lot of times. And then they learn to be a monkey, but, they people buy them on a whim and then they bite the kid or you know they're they they get tired of changing diapers and they get you know then they're in a small bird cage in a back bedroom then they're in the basement oh. then they're in the garage so they're oh. just put yeah so this is a monkey who was a baby that people loved and coddled and bottle fed and slept with and took them everywhere and then they grew up to be a monkey and started doing monkey things that they do, which is not real popular in a regular home, and people cage them and, and just don't interact with them anymore because they're they're afraid of them and they're dangerous. And they actually are even worse in some cases. Now, some of the um, studies that they do are horrific um, in laboratory settings, of course, uh, but they do have vet care, and a lot of the pet monkeys do not, because a lot of vets will not see monkeys because they're afraid of disease or afraid. You can't just give them a shot, you know, or look at them. They have to be anesthetized because they're very dangerous. So, there, any wild animal in captivity, it's just bad. It just doesn't work out. They they just have all kinds of psychological problems and physical problems because they're not being fed properly. They didn't get to cling on their mother like they would to create their muscles properly. Um, They didn't have the benefit of mother's milk. They were stolen from their mothers as early as three days old and sold to someone who doesn't speak monkey, you know, and doesn't know how to care for a monkey, and they're feeding them what they eat. Oh, here's a chicken McNugget, you know, for lunch and and their wild bodies can't tolerate that kind of processed meat and food and things that people eat themselves and 
and then feed the monkeys. So we have a lot of diabetic monkeys, and most of the diabetic monkeys are all from the pet trade because people don't eat properly. <laughs> and so then they're feeding their monkeys. So we, we're able usually to get them off insulin. We only have two monkeys left on insulin. The rest we've gotten most of them off and are being controlled by diet and exercise and just less stress. Having a, a monkey friend is a huge deal for stress. And then um, some are on oral medications. So but. you have put a question here, Carrie, on your list. I'm almost afraid to ask this, but it must be important or you wouldn't have brought okay. it up. What okay. is a monkey rodeo? Oh, my God, it's horrific. If you Google monkey rodeo, you'll see what they're doing. And they're doing it at baseball games, at uh carnivals and fairs and what they do is they chain the monkeys literally and you can see the chains in the photos and the videos they chain them there's a chain around their neck it goes down their um, front side and then chained around their legs to dogs oh. and then and they pull out all their teeth so they don't have any teeth and they're chained to these dogs and they run a race and then other ones, there's, there's three of these people out there doing these monkey rodeos. And there's one that's um, it's, um, border collies, and they're herding sheep, you know, and they make such sharp turns that the monkeys are just being thrown around on the dogs. It's just awful. And, and this is legal. Well, I was going to ask you that. We know that the legal protection for farmed animals is almost non-existent. We're doing much better with companion animals. It's not where it should be. What kind of protection is out there for monkeys? For pet monkeys, none. For lab animals, they do have USDA and they have IACUC and they have ALAS. They have a lot of different regulations that you need to do. But the pet monkeys, they don't even have, the, like puppies and kittens cannot be sold until they're weaned. You can steal a baby monkey right from the mother at three days old, and it ta- they don't wean for, well, I've seen monkeys on the backs of their moms for up to two years still nursing. Now, they start eating solid food at probably about six months. But, so it's legal just to steal a baby at three days old and give them to a different species to raise. So that's kind of crazy. And there are no protections. There's right here in Florida, there's someone right now, we had um, our fish and wildlife inspector um, bring us over a lemur that was in a, in a bad situation. And none of the animals, she had a lot of monkeys that she's breeding and none have ever seen a vet. So wow. you don't even have to get Well, you are an angel for these monkeys, that's for sure. So, <laughs> Carrie, what is your greatest challenge doing the work that you do? Well, probably the great there's two two big challenges. One of the greatest challenges is um financial. It's hard to get funding because a lot of people don't know there's a monkey problem. They don't know that there are over 100,000 monkeys in labs. They don't know that there are people with pet monkeys. So you have to educate people first. Be, you know, because, what do you mean monkeys? You want money to help monkeys at a sanctuary? They don't even know that there is a problem. So there's that. The other 
that is is devastating, of course, is when you have a lot of animals. Um, we have 308 monkeys right now, and they're, they get old and they die, or you know, it's just hard. It's never easy to um, deal with death, and that's one of the hardest things I think um, for myself and our staff, and you know, everyone that's working with these amazing you know, animals, that um, that's difficult. That's, you know, really tough. And, and then seeing them come in and just, you know, such a – the good thing about it is you see them come in and, you know, in a bad way and they're self-attacking or biting themselves and, you know, don't know they're a monkey and then they meet a monkey friend and they become a monkey. That's, that's the good – you get to see an animal come in this way and then you watch them turn into a monkey. And that oh. is amazing. Yeah. And make friends and, you know, just, I mean, they're just so amazing to watch them. We just put a, introduced a pair together to each other a, uh, a few weeks ago, and they're just so in love. <laughs> it's oh, so, so amazing. <laughs> so everybody who wants to learn more about the wonderful work that Carrie is doing down there in Florida, the website is junglefriends.org. On Facebook, it's Jungle Friends Primate Sanctuary. And we'll put uh, all the other URLs up on the show notes, too. So, Carrie, I told a story, a life-changing experience for me that happened with one of your wonderful monkeys when I was fortunate enough to get to visit. And, And we do need to be clear, yours is not a visiting kind of sanctuary. You you don't open to the public. Is that correct? That's right. We have Monkey Day once a year coming up in October for our supporters to come out and bring their friends and family and and see how we're spending their money. (laughs) And um, but other than that, we're not open to the public. Because and the thinking is this is not a zoo. These animals have been through enough. They don't have to be ogled by humans. Exactly. And they don't want, now there are some, the pet monkeys, you know, you walk up and they, hey, come here, let me have your stuff. They're you know, humanized. But we have a lot of monkeys that are, were in laboratory research and we had, they don't, two, we had one group come in that were so terrified of people. One person, we only had one person go feed them and clean them and take care of them. But if two people approached, they'd freak out. Two people coming near them meant something bad was going to happen. So, and and just people staring at them. They don't want to be stared at a lot of times, except for some of the pet monkeys. You know, they're they're a whole different category. But for the most part, we don't want them interacting with people. I mean, if a monkey is saying, hey, how, you know, come here, I want to talk to you, you can say, hey, hi, Scooter, how are you doing? But they have monkey friends. So we want them to be, you know, you know, engaging with their own species that can talk monkey and do monkey things together. Mm. And Carrie, this just shows how wonderful you are and how you are the real deal. Because I know that when you can go to a sanctuary and see the cute animals, people are more eager to give donations. And you're just saying the best thing for these animals, period. And I'll deal with the donations. (laughs) I mean that right. you're you're something. I have great admiration. Well, otherwise for you're you. a zoo, and that's what I so tell people. If you as, want to go as I said, them. I told my monkey story, and I'm sure you have Aww. hundreds. 
Just tell us one in our last few minutes here. Tell us a wonderful, heartwarming, inspiring story of you and one of your primate friends. Oh, gosh. There's so many stories. Um, oh, I don't even, I didn't even think to think of who I wanted to talk about because there's so many. Um, of course, Samantha always comes to mind, and you know, Samantha was diagnosed over a year ago with um, triple negative breast cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry. She recently, she died last December. Oh, bless you. And it it was so hard because she died right before her 25th birthday. And this was, I didn't have human children. (laughs) She was like my child and, you know, her sister was here and her mother and all of her friends. And it was just so sad because, and it's still, I miss her every day because she was so funny. I mean, she was just such a prankster and she was always doing something to get people's attention. You know, she'd be, you know, chasing after a skink in her (laughs) habitat or, you know, throwing things and playing roughhousing with her sister. And she just, every day was just, you know, she lived right behind, I live in a trailer right at the sanctuary, and she was right behind my trailer. So every day, all day, you know, I saw Samantha and her sister Charlotte. And um, so it was really, really hard, and it's still hard every day because she's gone. And, um, you know, that's, but she was so, she meant so much to me and has meant so much to so many monkeys because it was her, you know, Samantha coming into my life that had all of this happen. You know, this, uh, so many monkeys have, you know, been able to have a, a, we call it an almost wild monkey life because of Sam. So, that, you know, she was just, she's my heart. <laughs> I just love Samantha and miss her so much. But, you know, we've got, and then there's Poochie, of course, who you, you met. <laughs> and he just is amazing. You know, he he is amazing. Was he a pet? Was that why he was so interested in me? He was found running loose on the Eisenhower Expressway in Chicago. My goodness. Have, yeah. I didn't know that, but I used to live in the yeah. western suburbs of Chicago in Wheaton, <laughs> Illinois, and the way I'd get into the city was always the Eisenhower Expressway. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. Yep. And they think that he, well, we were assuming he was a pet because he had his canines pulled out and his teeth were seemed to be filed down, and that's what people do with their pets. They A lot of them pull out all of their teeth. Um, but he had his canines extracted, and um, and he would, they think he was in a fire because a lot of his hair was gone and he had some tr- problems breathing. So maybe there was a house fire and he lived at the house and got out, and I don't know. No one knows. I wish he could talk because it was, I'd love to hear his story. <laughs> well, he can almost talk. I, I have oh, I to know. say the the connection <laughs> with this this little monkey is really something. So I think in our last couple of minutes here, we just might have a caller. Oh, great. Hey, Diane, their caller? Have a caller, but that gives us more time to talk. So, Carrie, when you get up in the morning, 
what do you want to accomplish in the day ahead? Hmm. Wow. So many things. <laughs> the first thing I do every morning as I go and check on our, our monkeys, if we have any monkeys in the clinic and we have, um, our, we call it Magical Manor, and it's actually our Bob Barker Medical Clinic, and Bob Barker donated the funds to create this amazing clinic that we have. And I go and check on our monkeys there. And right now we have uh, Aunt Jake is there. She got in a little bit of a involved – she wasn't in, in the scuffle, but she lives with four monkeys. There's a little bit of a scuffle, so she, got, she um, has a wound on her arm. And then we have um, CB, who is in the iron toxicity studies, who is in renal failure right now. So, and he's old. He's about 40 years old. So he's an old guy. And we do hospice care here. So um, we allow them to live. Now, we don't, you know, we don't want them to be painful. We want to make sure that they're pain-free and can die naturally is how we you know, we do it. We don't do heroics. We allow monkeys to, just the hospice philosophy, we allow them to live and we allow them to die. Oh, so, well, um, and you allow them yeah. to live well in a way that they would <laughs> never have an opportunity to otherwise. Carrie Bagnell, you're a saint. You're also a oh. fabulous uh, participant in uh, in the documentary A Prayer for Compassion. So check out junglefriends.org. Next week, everybody, Carol Burrell will be on with Yogic Veganism and also the Reverend Dr. Kevin Jenkins of The Cool Podcast, who's also a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Lots of them are vegan. God bless you, everybody, and um, eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth, and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.